Hello, welcome to The Plot Thickens with me, Ellie Griffiths. You might know me as the author of the Dr Ruth Galloway books and the Brighton Mysteries. This is a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of crime writing, from what it's really like to be a published author, to the intricacies of our research, and just how we think up those killer twists. Each episode, I'm welcoming an expert guest to lift the curtain on everything you want to know about the world of crime fiction. For those of you who have read my Dr Ruth Galloway books, there'll be lots of behind-the-scenes details on the characters, settings and history. But if you haven't come to them yet, we'll make sure to flag any spoilers, and there'll still be plenty to enjoy. This week, I'm very lucky to have best-selling and award-winning novelist Mick Heron to talk about the art of writing a great crime novel and a great series. Mick is best known for his Slough House novels, which have been shortlisted for eight CWA Daggers, winning twice, and last year he won the Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year for Slough House. His most recent book, Bad Actors, which is an interesting title which we will discuss, was a Sunday Times top ten bestseller. Hi, this is Ellie Griffiths on The Plot Thickens, and today I'm really happy to be joined by one of the best crime writers around and a good friend of mine, Mick Heron. Um, Mick, I, we, when we just met just now, I said to you, sort of, how are you? And you said you were feeling a little bit delicate. Maybe you could tell us why you're feeling a bit delicate today. Oh, I could do that, yes. <laughs> um, yesterday was the uh, press junket. Isn't that a wonderful word, junket? Junket. It sounds like something you could eat. Yeah, well, it used to be. I first came across it when I was small. It was in Enid Blighter novels. Yes. It was a, it was a pudding. It's like sort of milk and bread it's pudding. cream and... and jam kind of thing, I think. Right. So yeah. I'm guessing that's not the sort of junket you had last <laughs> night. Maybe it was. Uh, no, the, yesterday was the, so the press junket for season two of Slow Horses, which starts streaming on Apple TV Plus in a few weeks' time, December the 2nd, I think. Uh, and all, uh, yes, most of the cast were there and, um, and the director, and it was a day of press interviews and TV shows and things. I had very little to do. I, I was there quite early. Um <laughs> And did an interview with the Sunday Times, uh, along with, with Gary Oldman. And then I spent the rest of the day essentially lolling around in a very nice hotel room, uh, doing a bit of work, uh, until the evening where there was um, where there were yeah, refreshments were taken. Uh, yes, a drink along was with had. The, the, the wonderful cast. They were all there doing, there was a screening for um, select members of the public. And uh, most of the cast were, were there and they did a and a So I spent half an hour listening to them answering questions and it was just extraordinary i was i was watching them and remembering you know 10 12 years ago when i first started writing slow horses and looking at this cast we've got gary oldman christian scott thomas saskia reeves and then the younger ones jack loudon rosalie czar and christopher chang and to have that amount of, of talent all playing in the same show is just extraordinary i feel so incredibly lucky uh and yes and afterwards we all mingled a lot there was a lot of mingling and um, as a result, I didn't get that much sleep and I did drink a fair bit of wine. So basically, you were out drinking with Gary Oldman, Kristen schmoozing. Scott Thomas and the rest. But <laughs> what is it? Uh, oh, really? Oh, interesting. So what is it like, Mick? I'm trying not to sound too jealous here, but what is it like when you, you said, you know, you wrote Slow Horses 12 years ago and then you suddenly see it on screen? What is that feeling like? Um, I feel in a way, oddly detached from it. I think it would be very different if, um, if you know, I'd, I'd written the book last week and were to see it on screen and, felt, and still felt very much, you know, part of it, as it were, or it was part of me. Um, with, 
with me, I don't know whether you're the same, once I've finished writing something, especially once it's been published and it's out there, I feel like I've relinquished it and it's, you know, it's no longer my property as such. It's a bit different because I'm, you know, it's part of a series and I'm still involved with these characters. Um, but I don't feel proprietorial about it particularly. So I was, I was fine with seeing, you know, it being sent out into the world. But it would probably, I'd probably feel differently if they had made a bad job of it. Which, and we've all, we've all seen poor adaptations of. Uh, and it's of a wonderful adaptation. It really, but really they've is. done a wonderful job with a fantastic cast, great writers, lovely direction in both in both seasons. This new one looks very different, um, and it's uh, um, a lot of open air and, and Cotswolds and things like that. There's um, there's more. They, they get out of the office a bit in this one. <laughs> Away um, days. Yeah. <laughs> so it has a different uh, different tone to it, but it's um, it's equally as, as much fun to me uh, to watch, and I, I hope viewers will find uh, the same. Because you've actually written book eight now, which is called Bad Actors. <laughs> it is. What it's did it. your new friends in the cast <laughs> think about that? My partner Joe took a lovely set of photographs of, uh, of me with, with Gary on set. This must have been more than a year ago. Yeah, two years ago now. Me and Gary on set. Me and Gary, I'm me sorry. And Gas, me and Gary on set. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I felt I had to let him know that the book, which you know hadn't been published at that point, <laughs> the new book was going to be called Bad Actors. And he roared with laughter, thankfully. And uh, Joe took these pictures on her phone of uh, of Gary throwing his head back and <laughs> laughing. We must do something with those shots one day. Um, so yes, they were. They, they they quite happily went along with the with the joke. The the title had been there for some years. I mean, before the the TV show started up, um, I tend to p- hide titles in in novels as I go along. So bad actors had been kicking around a bit, oh. and the the previous book was nearly called Bad Actors, but I uh, I changed my mind about using it then, and I I held it over. And um, so, uh, by pure coincidence, the the book was published around about the same month that the uh, TV show started uh, yes, it broadcasting. Feel, it feels sort of meant, doesn't it? But your titles are really good. I really like Slow Horses. Where did that come from? <clears throat> um, slow Horses uh, in in the in the books, um, the the characters, the the crew at Slough House are called Slow Horses because it's called Slough House. It's that kind of assonance, the the half rhyme there, the slant rhyme, whatever you call it. Um, but in real life, it came about the other way around. I was reading a novel by the wonderful American film writer Don Winslow. Yes. Uh, the Winter of Frankie Machine was the book. And he has a line in it about uh, an inveterate gambler who had a um, particular fondness for slow horses. And I loved that phrase. And uh, I thought, well, I'm, I'm having that. <laughs> um, so I took slow horses and then worked backwards from that. So Slough House is called Slough House because I wanted something oh. that would justify them being called yes. slow horses. So the, the it, title came first. And it Slough does remind me of a ten, of the Lady of Shalott, you know, uh, by the margin, Willow Vale, slide the heavy barges trailed by slow horses and unhailed the shallot flitteth silken sails I... skimming down to Camelot. Congrats. Well, well, well um, it's a year since I've read The Lady of Shalott. Because um, we both studied English, oh, yeah, didn't yes, we? We no, must I, have done Tennyson. Well. Yeah, no, that uh, that phrase went through me without, uh, without touching the eyes when I originally oh, read it. Could have been there somewhere could, in the... Almost certainly. Well, so shall we go back to the start of, well, not it's not the start of your writing career, but the start of Slow Horses and how that came to be published and because you'd published another series set in Oxford before then? Uh, that's right. I call the, it's called the Oxford series now. Uh, sometimes it gets called the Zoe Bohm series because um, it features a, a private detective called Zoe. Uh, but there were two main characters in that, Sarah, Sarah Tucker and, and Zoe Bohm. And um, the first book, Down Cemetery Road, was about uh, my central character was, was Sarah in that and, and Zoe has a kind of small part towards the end 
but then I built the second book around her. So there were there were four novels in all, and those two characters kind of take centre stage at, at different times in the books. Um, I don't plan things <laughs> much in ad- advance. You know, I, I I was well into plotting the second book before I, it occurred to me that I could use Zoe in it, whom I'd already invented. You know, so that was sort of. It looks deliberate. It looks like I planned things that way, but I didn't. It was um, it was pure chance. I don't know whether you find the same thing in your with your series, whether things suddenly acquire importance along along th- the way. I think we plan things less than people think, don't we? I mean, I I certainly thought the first Ruth book is the Crossing Places, and I did think that uh, Ruth and Nelson would kind of have a long story, but I didn't think that I would necessarily get to write it, you know. And, and and I guess I did think I'd like to, you know, write more about Ruth. But I didn't plan it in any real sense. I mean, did you think, you know, when Jackson Lamb appeared in your mind, I want to ask a bit more about him in a minute, did you think, wow, this is a character that could sustain a series? No, I didn't have that sort of thought. I've, I've planned trips to the supermarket with more detail and <laughs> thought than, uh, than, than I've planned novels. Um, no, uh, these things kind of grow, develop along the way. I mean, I do think that with novels... You want a sense of organic growth to them. I'm sure we've both read books which feel quite inert because they've been overplanned, and it's like seeing a, a spreadsheet being transcribed into prose. Yes. You know, um, so it's, it's important to avoid that kind of feeling on the page. I think, um, and yeah. I'm making it sound much more <laughs> no, better than it is. You know, organic growth is a, is the way to uh, to develop a novel. Basically, you know, you're just you're thinking on the page rather than. So, do you uh, plan at all? It. Do you have like a chapter plan, or is it all in your head, or is it do you just trust it's going to appear on the page? I used to think that if I thought of something um, good, then I would remember it. Obviously, <laughs> that that is not true. If I think of something that I think might be worth using, I write it down. Otherwise, it's gone minutes <laughs> later. Um, I will have a series of plot points that I'm aiming towards and a, a generally an idea of what the conclusion is going to be, but no great detail. And the, um, the, the way the plots actually work, that all happens in the writing. Um, it's all very well saying, OK, so this, um, this particular character uh, does X at a certain point in the novel. But you've got to, you know justify that character being in the place and being there so at that time. So you sort of work from that point of thinking that's going to happen and then think, and then you know, how did ha- it get How there? does it happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of, all the, you know, sort of getting out of bed in the morning and remembering where you put your keys, all those little details that you, you know, that are part of the one's own daily life. That kind of builds into the characters' lives as well. There has to be reasons why they do what they do. Um, and those kind of small justifications are essentially what, what creates a plot, I think. And I think when I think of your books as well, I think of there's some wonderful kind of, not set pieces, the wrong word, but some wonderful big scenes, like I'm thinking of the flash mob at the beginning of... Oh, Spook Street. Spook, Spook Street. Spook Street, yes. Um, mm. And do do they come to you and you think, you know, I've, I've got to have a scene like that? Does the, does the sort of big scene come to you? I can't remember the moment of deciding to do that. Moments like that generally come about because... They're acquired for one reason or another. If I want, I wanted a lot of young people to be together in a particular yes. place. I think, and at the time, um, there'd been. I think. I think these kind of flash mob things were were nineties, really. Weren't they? I can't really remember I guess when they, they were. were but yes. there was a brief. Um, they had a brief renaissance uh, when I was working in London. When I was commuting, and I remember. I didn't see it. I don't think. I remember hearing that one had happened near my place of work at the time, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's." 
That's a good thing. I'm there is something that. sort of spooky about them, isn't it? Suddenly people sort of moving in unison and, you know... They must be wonderful, actually. I, I think they must be. They must really be. quite extraordinary to, to see. Um, I had... Um, I read a, an article by Frank Gottrell Boyce, obviously, you know, terrific writer and um, screenwriter and uh, wrote the, the London Olympic opening. And he said, um, no one goes out of a cinema remembering the story arc. Um, but people go out remembering the scenes. You know, they come out, you come out the Godfather and you think, oh, that wonderful, there is a, a story arc in The Godfather, obviously, but you come out thinking of that wonderful scene in, in, in Sicily where he sees the girl or the wedding. or So I think the scenes are quite important, aren't they? And they do stick in your mind. It's, it's interesting, you know, The Godfather, because there's a scene in that, you know, the, the very famous one, the guy who's crossed on Corleone, he wakes up with a horse's head yes. in his bed. I mean, how the hell did that happen? I know. The logistics of that are just a nightmare, aren't they? Yes. I mean, how did they get the head yes. into the bed without waking him up? Well, if I'd written that scene, it would have gone very, very different. <laughs> well, it would be quite fun to see The Godfather done slightly for laughs. So obviously, you would never kill a horse for laughs. And I'm a, I'm a big slow horse fan and horse fan. Um, but yes, that's very true. I suppose Don Corleone can do everything, can't he? And he can even do that. I don't I th- know. Uh, I think in a novel, you would have to... Yeah, and I haven't actually read the novel of The Godfather. Maybe, uh, maybe Didn't you good, read it for all the rude bits? Like, I think we're the same age. And I think at school, I remember people were reading it for the, for the sex scene right at the beginning. Uh, I, yeah, well, that obviously didn't get past the end last week. We were all too busy reading Jaws, I think. Um, yes, yeah, so if you put that in a in a book, you'd have to you'd have to explain. Yes, the mechanics of it. Yes, I think you would. Maybe that's the thing. Also, with when you're writing, you have to do the what happened before and then what happened afterwards, don't you? We don't have to, but it would be quite tempting to think. Then what happens? He wakes up with a horse's head. You know, who cleans the sheets? What happens? You know, where do they put it? And yes, where's the rest of the horse? You know, that sort of thing. I do have a bit of a weakness for um, funerals in my books, like those sort of gatherings, uh, weddings, funerals, christenings. Quite a lot of my books end with that. And I think it is, that is about sort of getting all the characters together, isn't it? Kind of. It is, well, that's very traditional, isn't it? I mean, that's really the, the Victorian yes. mode where you always have a, a wedding or a funeral or yes, a, you know, I think, a big birthday party. Was it? I can't remember who said this. Maybe it's David Lodge or something that, that uh, all Victorian novels end with an inheritance or, or a proposal or a death. And uh, I must have stuck in my mind because the, the book I've just written, uh, Ruth 15, The Last Remains, has all of those things in it. Has a proposal, uh, an inheritance of a kind and a death. So that's where I kind of left that <laughs> a proper tribute to the Victorian novel then well I love Victorian novels um, and th- there is something quite sort of I think Victorian about your books in a way you know the, the, the setting in London and the labyrinthineness of Slough House I, th- I think when you're writing about London and trying to either capture something of it or frankly invent something uh, of it then you're almost always going to be referencing Dickens in, in one way yes. or another because he did it all. He was there first. So and there is a very um, Dickensian kind of feel to the opening passage of Slow Horses, which, yes. you know, quite deliberately so. Yes, yeah. and he, he went everywhere, didn't he? Because I've just written a book called Bleeding Heart Yard, um, which is was a sort of standalone but has Harbinder Core in it. And, of course, he wrote about Bleeding Heart Yard in Little Dorrit. feels like he's been everywhere. Um, I remember hearing Nadine Matheson talk recently about how nobody really sets their novels in, in South London, in Lewisham. But, of course, Dickens has Shooter's Hill, doesn't he, at the beginning of um, uh, Tale of Two Cities. So. It does, and uh, many of the street names around South London, um, where is it? It's in Southwark, isn't it? Yes, Are named yes. after his characters. And Southwark, yes, of course. He was great at names and 
places and everything, really, let's just say. Hello there, it's me, Ellie Griffiths, interrupting myself to say that if you're enjoying this episode of The Plot Thickens, you might also like my newsletter. Each month you'll get email updates about new book announcements and exclusive content and offers. And my kitten, Pip, might just pop up every now and again. If you're on this list, you're guaranteed to be the first to find out any big news. So get subscribing via the link in the podcast description. Now, back to the episode. So let's just go back to Slow Horses. So you, you'd written the book. You didn't know it was going to be part of a series. Um, did your publishers think it might be the beginning of a series? Because um, I talked to Anne Cleves on, on here on, on The Plot Thickens, and she was saying that when she wrote is it The Crow Trap, the first, I think the first Vera book, she said that her, her then editor had said, oh, nobody wants series. So she was writing a standalone and then suddenly halfway through there's a knock on the door and who's outside? It's Vera. And uh, then I think luckily that editor emigrated to uh, New Zealand. I, guess. I don't think uh, she did that deliberately because no, Vera came I don't in, think so, no. And then Anne was able to write the series. So did your publishers think, oh, series potential? Uh, I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, I was Slow Horses was published um, and then I parted ways with that particular publisher. Oh, I see. So the second book... Although I had embarked on a series, and it was only my American publisher that um, that published that one in the first instance. Deadlines was only only appeared in uh, in the states. Um, so, whatever ambitions I harboured towards a series, and they didn't come straight away. You know, when I wrote Slow Horses, it was only as I got to the end of that book yes. that I thought I'm going to write more about these characters. Um, I was doing entirely on, on my own because I wanted to. But oh, then right. I think that's how I've always written. Really, I write the books that I. I've never pitched a novel. I've never pitched a novel. It's really hard to do anything other than that, isn't it? I think so. You know, I used to be an editor and I I worked for HarperCollins. And I used to think it would be so easy if you could say to your, you know, one of your more reliable authors, do you know what's really hot at the moment? It's it's books about librarians in Minnesota. Can you write one? And they'd go, yeah, of course. Off I go. But you can't, can you? You just can't write anything that you're not really enjoying, I guess. I don't think I think we'd, it would come back to what we were talking about earlier. I think you'd end up with a quite inert novel, yes. one that had no kind of heart or soul in it. Inert's the word, really, isn't it? It would just be there on the page and not necessarily in. So, what happened then? Did did an, your books were then published in America, and then did another UK publisher come on board? That's right. Um, John Murray um, took the books up with the third one, Real Tigers, and they reprinted the first two. And they started the ball rolling in this country, and within a couple of years, it was really quite a swift process. Looking back on it, um, they were being bought in, in yes. enough numbers that I could give up the day job. Um, but I think you're like me in the sense that I don't think either of us were our series were sort of massive successes at first. You know, I think we've both recently had a number one, but it's taken a while, hasn't it? Uh, it has, it has, but it was, you know. I was never setting out to write a number one. No, no, I do. no. I don't think you can set happens. out to do that, can you? I, I think, you know, if you did, you'd probably be almost certainly doomed to failure, I think. Um, so, no, these, that side of the business is, is the business, and this is something that publishers do, and uh, some publishers do it very well, and I'm very grateful that uh, that I'm, I'm with one of those now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, the, the job is just getting on with the writing, and that's that never goes away. That brings me to something I wanted to talk to you about, actually, because uh, when I heard you you talking at St Hilda's, and uh, St Hilda's is one of those wonderful conferences that pop up over the years. Is it a conference? I suppose it is. It's at 
Yeah, we call it a weekend on on the uh, on the oh, on this yes. kind of board there and uh, the committee. So say a little um, bit about what it is because it's a brilliant thing, St Hilda's. Well, it's it happens over a weekend in August every year. We've uh, it's been around for quite a while now. I think next year's the twenty sixth. I think I probably got that wrong. I shouldn't have said anything. Um, and we invite authors to come and speak, and they don't. It, what makes it different is that writers aren't invited to come and talk about themselves or their own books. They, they're invited to talk about their enthusiasm. You gave a lovely talk on Cold Comfort Film. It was great um, fun. And people come along and listen, and it promotes discussion over the weekend. And they're very, um, very convivial uh, weekends. And all the authors go to all the talks, which is always nice. It's really and, lovely. Um, and it makes you think, and it makes you make connections. And this year um, was during that really hot period in August, wasn't it, which was mm. really made it sort of wonderful and, and sort of magical and it's right there on, on the banks of the river um, at St Hilda's uh, yes and I talked about Cold Comfort Farm being a crime novel which was great Everything, every novel is a crime novel well exactly because hadn't you said the year before that Wind in the Willows was a crime oh, novel oh yes yeah. Oh. you look at the uh, appalling things that go on in that book it's, it's horrendous yes, yes. and behaviour of the upper classes you know Mr Toad just yeah. you know Bullingdon Club member I'm sure you know just... almost certainly there's yes, car theft horse theft <laughs> horse theft yes yes Home invasions. Home invasions. It's a it's a shocking Kidnapping. story, really. So, um, one of the things that I heard you say at St Hilda's that was so interesting was that you made a distinction between the writer and the author. Could you say a little bit about that? Well, again, it goes back to what I was saying just there about about publishers. When when you're doing the the publishers stuff, you know, the, the work that they want you to do out in public, you're being the author. You know, yes. you turn up in bookshops and do events and uh, go to festivals and the like. That's that's an author's work. It's it's going out into into public and um, meeting readers and talking about the, the work. Um, but that is very different from the writer. The writer just sits at home and gets on with the yes. actual job. Yes. And for me, and I think for most people, that's the important part of it, the part that gets is, is the fulfilling some reason for doing it in the first yes. place is the time that you spend alone with your own creations and uh, enjoying bringing them to life on the page as much as, as one's able to um, and that's very separate from I mean the person I am when I'm actually you know working on a on a, on a, uh, on a chapter couldn't stand up in public and say anything you know that's completely <laughs> inarticulate mess a bit like I feel right now to be honest. Um, whereas the you know the authors has to put all that aside and and take a step back from the work and think about you know the bigger picture that's involved and look back on the work that's been done and see it in a slightly different way I mean when you're in the middle of a paragraph all you all you can think about are the you know the sentences you're writing I don't think about the plot no, or, or, I just think about the scene that I'm doing I think yes. about the, the moment of dialogue or whatever but you know to be the author you've got to step back look at it on the whole and try and discover what you thought you were talking about that's when you start talking about themes I can see themes in my book but I don't generally kind of decide what they're going to be beforehand no. you know, it's um it's what you what you see you, you realize what you've done after you've done it and you do and sometimes it's a surprise i remember getting a review i think it was the the amazing barry forshaw once reviewed one of my books and said ellie griffiths uses the sea as a metaphor for human unkindness oh i've always thought of that and right, i well obviously <laughs> i was clearly meant to do that but i thought wow so i do but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose authors now, we, we do, we both do quite a lot of events and we often see each other at uh, events. And um, I'm also going to be talking uh, in another episode to Leslie Thompson and William Shaw, who are good friends of both of us. And we're always sort of rocking up at the same events and having having a drink together and things like that. So I wonder if authors have to 
have to be the author more now. But just as I was saying that, I thought about Dickens because he famously did did massive tours and events and actually died after giving it his all him, in didn't a... didn't it? And he was, he was younger than we are now. Really. Yes. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Which is a frightening thought. That's a really frightening thought, Mick. He had a long beard, though. He seemed he older. Beard, yeah. um, but he he died after, after giving a particularly dramatic reading from Oliver Twist, didn't he? Uh, I th- think it was yeah. the death of Nancy that killed him. I wouldn't be at all surprised. It was after an American tour as well. Yes, it was. He had a very grueling, uh, grueling year of it. Um, yes, luckily we haven't been called upon to actually um, talk ourselves to death yet by our publishers, and I don't suppose that will happen. But um, there are more and more events all the time, it seems, and everywhere has a has a literary festival now. It's really true, yes. And they're great fun. I mean, I do do enjoy them, and um, the, the crime writing community is just that. It's a community and a very collegiate bunch. And uh, as you say, we're always bumping into each other and seeing the same faces over and over again. So we, we have these, these kind of friendships are, uh, are developed over, over you know, and it is really a wonderful quite a short thing. space of time. It's something that I've really loved about becoming a crime writer is the friendships and, and the fun that we have. You and I were recently on stage in, in, in Stirling in Scotland doing all sorts of very strange things for um, a sort of game show that was, was devised by the evil minds oh, of I, I managed to repress Ab- all Abir <laughs> and Vaseem Khan. And I think I did a Boris Johnson impression um, and goodness knows what I else. thought Boris had actually come on stage. It was, it was <laughs> well, you were at university with Boris. Did it bring back horrible memories? Everything brings, brings back horrible I mean, you do, I'm not to imply that you were his best friend at university. We were, we, we were there at the same time. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I never exchanged words with him. All these um, this festivals and so on, they're great fun and we do enjoy them. But there is a downside. I don't know whether you feel have the same sort of experience. Um, the, the being in public, there's a price to pay for it because like I think a lot of writers, I'm fairly introvert I mean I can do that stuff I can do that in, in and you're public. a great but actor I, you you sometimes uh, have done you know murder mysteries and you're a really good actor <laughs> I get more nervous about doing that sort of thing than I do about <laughs> talking about books but there's a price to pay because afterwards um, I and I'm sure you have the same thing lots of writers do you need quite a dark room to recover yes. in you need downtime to to uh, to, re- to re-energize and so uh, a Doing you know a few days at a at a festival, it might take you an equal amount of time to sort of recover from it afterwards. Um, and there's, uh, I do a lot of these by or used to um, do a lot of these by um, public transport, and there were always times where, you know, you seem to spend a lot of a lot of your days at strange times late at night on a on a railway platform waiting for a connection and there's a huge amount of melancholy in that kind of so experience. So true. I, I'm the same. I, I get trains where I can and in fact I do remember Leslie and I once picking you up from a train station oh, God, in the middle yes. of um, in the middle of it felt like in the middle of absolute nowhere because there were no buses and taxis and I recently spent an hour in exactly the same place <laughs> oh, <did you? laughs> when a train broke down yes in the pouring rain that's it, a different it, story it is rather yeah it's rather sort of also the I find the mid-afternoons like if you've done an event maybe at lunchtime and you've got one in the evening and you're in a strange town and how many times can you have a coffee and it's a really melancholy time it is it? it is I, I like to nap <laughs> during those times but I do think that um, that the melancholy is a, a useful kind of emotion because it's it's quite strange and it doesn't generally strike you know there, there aren't many opportunities to be no, melancholic in the modern world are there? <laughs> so a really um, good way of looking at it Mick yes and, I and, should uh, enjoy those melancholic moments yeah I mean I find them creatively useful you know yes. you can, it, there's something a sort to of tap thrill into. Yeah, there's a sort of yeah. thrill of melancholy there that is. can come over you uh, borderline anxiety I think yes um, there. 
Yeah, so um, you know there, there is an upside upside to it, but um, do you, <laughs> an upside to the downside. Yes, but do do you write when you're on tour? Because um, I know some people do. No, I can only write when I'm at home. Absolutely, same with me. I can only write, but really, I can. I'm not saying I can only write. So I don't want to say that, but I like to write in my writing shed on my desktop, just me and it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm similar. I can do reviews. I don't review very often these days, but something like that. Yes, I could do that. Or even, I, I wouldn't edit, but yeah, or maybe even short stories, maybe. But I couldn't, I don't think I could write. So I was on a, doing a tour with, with, with lovely William Shaw a couple of years ago, obviously before lockdown. And we, we had to get loads of different trains. I can't remember where we were going. Actually... One of the places we went was Crew Station. And you know that I write a series about uh, the 1950s sort of varieties of the last days of musical. Yeah. And my granddad was a musical performer. And he said that that these these acts, they were always on the road. Um, you know, they were, they were a different town each week. You know, they'd be in Scarborough, they'd be in Glasgow, they'd be in Eastbourne. Um, but on Sundays was changeover day. And that was the day when all the, the, the pros, they called themselves, all, all the acts, would kind of meet at specific places. And one of them was the tea, the tea rooms on Crew Station. And when I was with William, we passed through Crew Station, so I made him have a cup of tea in a rather horrible station, so I could say I'd been there. Um, to go back to my train of thought. Oh, yes, so on this... this Your quite, train of thought is currently part of Crew Station. <laughs> Stopping at Crew Station, train of thought pulling in. Um... One of the things that, that really impressed me about William was even on a short train journey, he'd be writing and I would be like some sort of horrid child because I'd be going, William, what are you doing? And he'd be like, writing my book. And I remember looking over his shoulder and seeing something that he'd written and reading the book and it was there. So he was actually writing his book like in 10 second bursts on... That's amazing, isn't it? I have, I have travelled with people who've done the same thing. I remember being on a ferry. It must have been going to Butte. The, oh yes, Butte Noir. Yes, that's right. We and, do uh, go to great places. We do. It has we to, do. Have to say yeah, that was that's a lovely one. And one of the uh, people I was was with sat down on the ferry, opened the laptop, and gone on with writing the novel. And it does make you feel. And we're sitting there saying, "Oh, look at that!" <laughs> yes. Is that a seal? That <laughs> a seal? <laughs> Where are the puppies? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, it, but it, but it, I suppose it's interesting that that's you know we all work in different ways, don't we? And we're not all, we're not all the same in our. But I do, and and I think it's absolutely right that um, I think I'm quite extrovert. I really love events. I really love meeting readers. Um, but sometimes your face hurts from smiling, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yeah. And you do need to just be back in, in you know, in, in your little writing space. And I can only write, really, sort of on my own. And quiet. I don't like to have music. What about you? Are you do you listen to music when you write? I do listen to music, yes, um, but uh, almost always instrumental music. I don't want to hear somebody singing. Uh, I don't want <laughs> well, to hear so words. So true, generally, <laughs> mate, really. Uh, I don't want to hear um, somebody's, you know, lyrics um, coming no. into my head while I'm trying to write. I'm OK with choral music. I mean, the human voice is fine, but I don't want recognisable no. language coming into it. And does does playing the music sort of get you into the, the mood, if you like? Um, I'm not sure that it does. It's part of the process. Um, certainly, it's it's the kind of settling down. Because yes. I don't write at home. I have an apartment I go to to write. So um, putting the music on, you know, 
drawing the curtains, opening the windows, putting the music on. It's all part of what I do before Going I start Going somewhere work. else is quite good because I say I, I only have a, it's a writing shed in the garden. Um, my husband always says I couldn't, shouldn't call it a shed because he lovingly built this beautiful, but to call it anything else sounds a bit sort of Margot Ledbetter, doesn't it? <laughs> I go to <laughs> my writing studio, studio <laughs> yes. And uh, But anyhow, it is basically a shed. But even that, even the, the feeling of sort of leaving my house and going to the top of the garden feels like going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, it's an important thing to do. But I mean, I used to, I used to live in the apartment that I that I write in, and I used to, you know, get out of bed and walk all the way into the next room and start work. And that, that even was enough that, of a journey. Even that, is, <laughs> even that is a journey. Gosh, we're quite lucky to have that commute, really. So before we finish, Mick, I want to just ask you about what you're doing now and what's happening next and all those things. So what are you writing at the moment? Uh, I've just had a very little book published, a short story. Um, called Standing by the Wall came out last I love your week. short stories. This is even shorter than the, the usual How ones. How short is it? <laughs> um, it's only about 10,000 words. I mean, it is it is little. And I um, hadn't intended it for... I was quite surprised to see it ending up as a, as a book. Oh, it looks lovely. I'm very, very happy with it. But that was not my intent when I wrote it. Is it one of those little books? I yeah. There's a technical it's, term it's, for it. Yes. <laughs> a small book. Um, it's uh, it's a slow house piece and it lovely. sits between bad actors and, uh, and, the, and the next slow house novel, which won't be for a few years. Uh, and I'm currently working on a book called The Secret Hours, which is a standalone but it's very much set in the same world it's not a slough house novel but it is set in that same universe that sounds so fascinating Mick. what exciting news and also great title is that one of the titles that was in your head you know waiting to be used no um this was unusual usually with me titles do kind of pop up and i think oh yes i'm going to use that one day this one i actually was while working on the book, thought, what can I call this? What yes. is this going to be called? Because I thought I need, I like to have a title so that I can wrap it into the book. I don't like to apply a title afterwards. And I, I love something that that's when there, you're reading a book it. and you suddenly get to the bit, like the bit in Slow Horses where you mentioned Slow Horses, yeah, you yes, know, you the, think, oh, I love that. There's a lot of satisfaction in finding, yes. finding a title within within novels when you're, when you're reading them, yeah. I have so, to say um, I do do that, don't you? Even if I've changed the title at the end, then I will go back and, and, try, put it and try and put it in somewhere. <laughs> Secrets of the trade. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of worked my way towards this and went through various... Um, uh, alternatives, but the secret hours is what I. Ended and you're up with. working on that at the moment. Uh, yes, I handed in in February, and it gets published next September. I've been working on it for nearly a year now, about a year, and it's approaching the end. I haven't quite decided how it ends, but I'm more <laughs> that's an exciting moment, isn't it, when it's approaching the end? Um, it is. Does it? Does finishing a book not leave you feeling a little bereft? Oh, um, I think. I think at first it's pure pleasure to finish it, really, and I love I love writing the end, although, of course, the end never remains there, but I do kind of love that moment of finishing it. Um, but I think after... And then what I do, which is really strange, is, um, because I have been writing two books a year, is when I finish it, I immediately, like that minute, I close down that document, start another document, put the title of the next book in. Oh, wow, uh, blind. Uh, so, But I don't start it then, but it's uh -huh. just the thought of... Finish one, I'll start another one. Uh -huh. But I think if I had any time between that, I might feel a bit bereft. So do you feel that at the end of books? Yeah, and partly it is the thought that um, sooner or later I'm going to start writing the next one. And that that feels like an impossible task. Beginning a book, beginning a novel, it's like starting up 
a mountain, you know, just think this is impossible. This cannot cannot be done. It's the the fact that you've done it before doesn't yeah, alter the, it doesn't the fact help that it's impossible. It doesn't help at all, does it? I wish I'd known that. Well, I know. I'm glad I didn't know that, really. But it just doesn't help, the fact that you've done it so many times. Mm. It's, it's the thought, isn't it, of all the things that have got to happen before the thing happens. <laughs> Very well put. But, you know, I, I feel exactly the same starting a book. You know, you just think... Gosh, I've got such a long way to go, and so many things have to happen to these people. Yeah, I'm I'm okay once it started, and I don't particularly look forward to finishing because because um, I like being in in the moment. You know, like uh, I focus on whatever I have to be writing that day. You know, that this paragraph is the most important paragraph in the book because it's the one I'm writing now. That kind of approach. When you get to the end, you just have to start again. So yeah. <laughs> yes, and and it, I mean, actually, your beginnings are fantastic. But so you. How do you start a book? Do you just sit down and think, right, today, Nick, I'm going to start a book? Uh, like at some level, uh, <laughs> that, that does happen that way. But I try to avoid the um, writing the first page for as long as possible. I will write descriptions. I will write passages of dialogue. I will write little character studies. A lot of stuff that ends up not being in, in the book. But I, I like to know when I sit down to, to write, start writing page one that I've got... 10, 15,000 words in the bank and that I'm, I'm not heading off into a kind of trackless waste, you know, that there is stuff there that I can, I can join together. So I avoid, the, uh, avoid starting a novel for as long as possible. <laughs> Ideally, I'd write the first page last, you know, and, and well, have everything done. Sometimes that does work, doesn't it? My, my editor, Jane, who I talked to on, on the very first uh, podcast, she says, um, I don't think she said it during our conversation, but she has said it, that most, <laughs> a lot of authors could, could could cut their first paragraph and and their last paragraph. Or, this is journalism, isn't it? It That's is, what they yeah, say absolutely. About news stories, yeah. Take out the first and last paragraphs. Yeah. And, and just start right in the middle in medias res or whatever it's called. But yes, it's... Um, I talked about dialogue because I think your dialogue is, is brilliant and it was wonderful to hear it spoken they use so much of it you know in 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 the in the tv series so do you enjoy writing dialogue is that something that you do almost as a sort of release uh almost yeah i mean dialogue one of the i i self-edit a lot um i have scenes of dialogue that go on for pages and pages and i have to cut and cut and cut um but i enjoy writing them so much you know i can go on at, at great length and you have to I take out all the, all the nonsense. and if i get stuck I just go into a bit of dialogue, even if that gets cut. I sort of, one of the ways I sort of get myself out of being stuck is to have a character say, well, what's happening here, you know? That's fascinating, because I've done that in the past. Uh, I think it was while writing Deadlines, I got a bit, you know, because I don't, (laughs) because I don't Well, exactly. uh, On paper, I I kind of got a bit lost with where things were going. So I had all my characters sit down, just discuss the situation. Yes. And uh, after that, it became much clearer to me what was going on and who knew what. It's so important, isn't it? Because sometimes you can get stuck in yourself and wonder what's going on. Did that bit of dialogue survive? No, no, it was purely an exercise. It's not in the book. It was something that I wrote just to to work out where I was. Um, And it's... I should do that more often because it really helped. It, it does help me. Yes, it usually doesn't survive to, to, to the final pages. But and because I suppose people don't often sit down and say to each other, so what just happened? Yes. <laughs> well, maybe they do. Maybe they should do it more. But I remember talking to my niece who's a barrister, which makes me feel very old just saying that. But anyhow, she's a barrister. And um, she said that in court, uh, that the police tell... Um, tell the story from the crime but the barrister's job is to tell it from another point mm-hmm. and sometimes I find that helpful to sort of sort of go right back even though that doesn't make it to the book I think what really happened first mm-hmm. because you're it's it's where you start the story is important isn't it 
It is. I found that when I was writing the most recent novel, Bad Actors, the, um, there's a, a middle section of that is a is a flashback. It starts at a particular point in time, and then there's a middle section of the book which takes place a few days prior to that, and then the present catches up with itself. And I realised very soon after starting to write that book that I had to write the middle first. I had to write the bit that was set in the past Yes. before I could write... The, the, the because, of course, the past scenes. happens first, doesn't That's it? That's right, yes. yes. And uh, <laughs> it was only by doing that that I knew what the characters knew at the, t- yes. <laughs> at the, at the opening pages. Because it's so easy to get lost, isn't it, and think, you know, what what happened, you know, what did they know then and what do they know now and uh, and all that. But I'm sure a forensic accounting of most of my novels would work out that actually this couldn't possibly have happened because these characters didn't actually know that at the time. <laughs> Quite often uh, Jane writes in the margin of my books things like, is it still Thursday? You know, <laughs> because you do just lose track of where everyone is and what they know at that one point, you know. And yeah, I remember reading a, a wonderful crime novel, uh, I'll, I'll spare the author's blushes, where they have the same lunch twice. They pack a lunch and it's, it's beautifully described and they set off on their journey and they eat their packed lunch and then a couple of pages <laughs> later they eat their packed lunch again. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I can, I can totally imagine writing that. I guess it should possibly. I used to be an editor. I like to think I would have picked that up, but maybe not, you never know. And people getting into... Getting into cars in a skirt and getting out in trousers and without there being so we've any all sort done of that. we've yeah. all done that. <laughs> exactly. I get changed that. in the car most of the time. Well, exactly. We've all done that in real life. But um, and let me just ask you a little bit about the humour in your books because I think people love that and it's certainly one of the things that that I adore about your books. Do you think to yourself, well, do you sort of store up jokes? Do you think oh, I could use this, or do they all just come organically? Talking about the organic process. Oh, I, I store them up. Um, I've got a I've got a file with, uh, oh, really? with one-liners in it. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I'll think of something that I think is really funny, and it's two or three books later before I find the right place to to put it. I've found, I've found jokes that are really old by the time they appear <laughs> in a book. Um, yeah, I will. As I was saying before, you know, don't I don't remember stuff the way I used to. I have to write everything down, but the lines of dialogue. Which are generally, you know, punchlines of one sort or another. Do I, I? Every so often, I will look at my quotes file and think, "Oh, yes, I'll use that one now," and uh, and just hope that I haven't used it before. And we were talking just this morning about um, sort of things that we see that we sort of store up because you were saying that you store up things that could be in comics. Say a little bit about that. Uh, no, I was just I, I sort of mentally collect them. I have wonderful. I've never used them in in a book. Uh, I once saw. A dog steal a string of sausages from the the basket at the front of a, a bicycle. I mean, as it was straight locked out of the up Beano. outside a post office. Straight out of the Beano. Two people carrying a, a pane of glass across a road, <laughs> and they got to the other side perfectly oh, safely, wow. which was you know mildly disappointing. Yes, I a have little to bit say. disappointing yeah. that something didn't go through it. Because yes, that came about when uh, one of the uh, one of our, our colleagues here managed to lock themselves out of the yes. flat this morning. Yes, that's right. We, we've been not in, in their dressing gowns. Yes, we've been kind of enjoying that. That traumatic experience in her life but we've been enjoying it vicariously they're getting locked out in your uh, in your dressing gown scenario but when those things do happen in life you do sort of think wow and and another another colleague was saying about how he'd watched a, a grand piano being winched up and he'd cycled underneath it or something it must have been a wonderful moment <laughs> <laughs> It could have gone horribly wrong. Yes, it could have been horribly wrong. I think you just you just need to add somebody really slipping on a banana skin that looks totally banana-ish to to your mental file. Absolutely, but. yeah. And these sorts of things can't go in books. You couldn't you couldn't no. put them in because they just wouldn't work. But the most extraordinary thing happened to uh, to my partner last week. She came in from uh, a day in London quite late at night. She'd got the bus up from the railway station, came home, realised after being at home about twenty minutes that she'd 
lost her phone. Oh. And wondered if when she she got off the bus, she'd deposited some debris, you know, sandwich wrappers and things into the into a bin by the bus stop and wondered if she'd accidentally put a phone in there. So we went out together and checked the bin, as you do. (laughs) No phone in there. Bus goes past in the opposite direction, uh, coming back from Woodstock. And um, we ran after it. It stopped at the next stop, stayed there for quite a while. Joe arrived, got on board, went upstairs. Her phone is there (gasps) on on the seat where she left it. So had it gone to the place? The bus had completed its route. It had gone all the way to Woodstock, I think. Turned around, come all the way back again, and was just passing at the moment we were looking for our phone. Oh, my goodness. You could not put that in a novel. It wouldn't work. You so could not put that in a book. Because I think real life is full of coincidences, isn't it? That's why we have the word. Yeah, Well, I guess that's right. Um, But if you put them in a book... People complain, don't they? They'd say, "Well, as if that would happen." Yeah, yeah. But but sometimes they do, and it, you know, and you you meet people who who know other people and you have those connections, but you can't use those too many times in books. Can Reality you? can do whatever it likes, but novelists have to obey sets of laws, and it's, <laughs> so really, unfair. it's, really, it's unfair. really unfair. And you know, I think yeah, I think the more I mean. Going back to our old friend Dickens wandering around, he wasn't afraid of a big coincidence, was he? he Absolutely not. No. He sort of threw them in, you know, sort of Magritte's existence is, is a big, giant coincidence. But he had people spontaneously I was about to bring things. up spontaneous yes. combustion, yes. I mean, <laughs> there should be again, not something combustion. you could do now. Oh. No, but maybe we should free ourselves from that a bit. But it is so true that real life is, is full of those moments and you just can't put... Them. We were in... Um, uh, Leslie Thompson and I teach uh, at, at um, a, a crime writing course at a beautiful old house called Westine in Chichester. And uh, one time we were there and the student, I think the students had gone off for a break and Leslie and I were sitting there very you know, hardworking, just planning our next sort of session. And there was a fire alarm. And we waited a few minutes, realised it was a real fire alarm. So our teaching room was at the end of a long, long corridor. So we came out of our, um, our teaching room and we faced... A, a, a wall. There was a wall in front of us. No corridor. I mean, it was the scariest moment, one of the scariest moments of my life. Just, and we, we were looked at each other and we thought, but this is a corridor. Why is there a wall there? Um, and I think we both talked afterwards how we'd both individually thought about going down the ivy, sort of climbing out of the window. Then one of us went up to the wall and touched it and it was actually a firewall. So it was um, uh, fabric made to look but why would you make a firewall to look like a panelled wall you know it just was to trap people to just <laughs> in trap people room. but it was such a frightening moment but I think you know you, you might not put that in a book because it was well maybe I will put it in a book I think I saw an episode of the Twilight Zone once which had a <laughs> very similar plot to it yes when, it, when a corridor becomes a, um, a solid wall it's a very frightening thing but uh, and I suppose there was an explanation I suppose you could put it in a book because there's an explanation you know because I guess we all break those those ten commandments of crime writing all the time, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Great. Well, I think we're probably coming to the end of our time here. So um, can't wait for The Secret Hours. Is that the next one? Um, the That's one right. Next, next about? September. That next will be September. Yeah. And this is a standalone, but in the world of... There's a certain amount of overlap. Well, that's life, isn't it? Mm. There's overlap in life. So it's been such a joy talking to you, Mick. It's been a pleasure, Ellie. It always is. Thank you for coming in here. Thanks very much, Mick Heron. Thank you so much for listening to The Plot Thickens this week. And thanks so much, Mick, for joining me on the podcast. In the next episode, I'll be talking to two of my wonderful friends, William Shaw and Leslie Thompson. So don't forget to subscribe.
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review, or better still, tell a friend about it. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Ellie Griffiths. The 15th and final book in the Dr. Ruth Galloway series is called The Last Remains, and it's out on the 31st of January, 2023. You can pre-order it now from all major retailers. This podcast was produced by Joe Conlon at Carmelite Studios for Quercus Books. And the production coordinator was Hannah Kors. Thank you.